Our sermon text uh, comes from Job chapter 40. We're going to be reading from verse 6 through all of chapter 41. So through 41 verse 34. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shield, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. 
The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like shop parts herds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the Lord's second speech to Job, uh, there is a transition. And the mood of this transition reminds me of the uh, Charles Dickens story, uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, which is about a stingy old man by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge, I believe he was a Calvinist, who is visited by three spirits that reveal his life to him by way of his Christmas experiences. Uh, there is the spirit of Christmas past, the spirit of Christmas present, and the spirit of Christmas future. Now, in the transition between the spirit of Christmas present to the spirit of Christmas future, there is a dark mood that comes over the story like a cloud. This new character that is introduced is not one you would want to meet in a dark alley. He symbolizes darkness and death like the Grim Reaper, and it seems that Scrooge would not be able to escape his clutches. So then we come to our transition in our text. From creation, where God created all things good and for his good purposes, even the wild animals, to something that is described as natural, but is symbolic of supernatural evil. He uses mythology to communicate spiritual truth. But think of it. How would you describe evil in your own life? Whether it is disease, you received a bad diagnosis, someone hurt you physically or emotionally, or how would you describe the evil that still remains in your heart? I know when I look at myself sometimes, I say, I'm a monster. How could I think that? How could I say that? How could I do that? Think of the darkness we witness in the world. You know, think of all the wars that are going on right now as we speak. How would we describe these things to communicate evil's terrifying reality. Uh, darkness and evil have been described and symbolized in fairy tales and myths throughout the centuries in all sorts of ways. Uh, as children, some of us believed in the boogeyman or 
monsters in our closet or under our bed. Or in books and films, you have Voldemort in Harry Potter or Sauron in The Lord of the Rings. Now this is sort of what the Lord does here in our text this morning. And the question is, where do we turn when evil occurs? Because Job has been asking, and sometimes we wonder, where is God in all this? Well, he is where he's always been, on his throne, governing all things. So the Lord speaks to Job once again, out of the whirlwind, and tells him again to dress for action like a man. He is to put on his wrestling belt again. He is to go a few more rounds with God and answer some more questions. The Lord is not done with Job. It seems that Job's repentance is not complete, just like all of our repentance is not complete. In his first speech, the Lord addressed Job's complaint about how God governs the world. Can you govern all things the way I govern Job? But in his second speech, the Lord addresses Job's complaint about God's justice, that he is unjust. So yes, Job's mouth was stopped after the Lord's first speech, but he has yet to confess that he was wrong and that God is in fact just. This is why he asks, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Will you blame God just to justify yourself? But every humbled sinner confesses to God with David. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Job needed to be brought to that place. We all need to be brought to that place. Notice how God responds to Job. He doesn't answer all of his complaints point by point, but rather he says, do you want to play God for a day? Have at it. But are you sovereign like God? He asks him, have you an arm like God? Are you as strong as God? Do you have his kind of power? Do you have a voice like God? Does your voice thunder and all creation listens to it? Can you create something out of nothing just by speaking it into existence? If so, Job, then adorn yourself. Emphasis on yourself. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Can anyone do that? Can anyone glorify themselves? No. Uh, but this has been man's desire since the fall. Man has been wanting to remove God from his throne to place himself there to become like God. But he says to Job, if you're claiming that my ways are unjust, then try and do what I do. Not that it's difficult for God to do, but it's impossible for Job or any one of us to do. He says, be the judge of the world. Can you do that? Then go ahead. Pour out your anger on the nations. Take down the proud and tread down the wicked where they stand. Not even the greatest of tyrants can control and bring down all their enemies. Hitler tried and he failed. 
Some are trying right now, and they're going to fail. He says, hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. That is the deep, dark, unknown place of death. Sheol. Do you even know where that is, Job? And if Job could do all this, God says that he will admit defeat. He will come to the house of Job on Job's day to acknowledge Job's sovereign power and worship him because Job is able to save the righteous and punish the wicked. He will even acknowledge that Job doesn't need a savior. Job is all powerful and all just. He can save himself. It makes you want to ask Job, how's that going for you? How's that working out for you? This is the problem of mankind since the fall. Man wants to be God, and that is the definition of arrogance and pride. Uh, This was Adam and Eve's problem. Uh, This was man's problem after the fall, believing that he can save himself. This was the problem at the Tower of Babel. We often view the Tower of Babel as a picture of secular society, but really, it's really a picture of salvation by works. They wanted to make a tower into the heavens. This tower was a ziggurat. It looked like a staircase that they could climb up to heaven on their own terms, by their own works. This was Job's problem with his arrogance. And it is the problem of man today. Man believes he can live his life and solve all his problems, and not always just on his own, but with God as his helper, of course. As long as man sits on the throne, and as long as we can tell God what is good for us. Man believes that he can save himself, not just without God, but some will even add, with God's help, of course. We believe we can defeat evil, but on our own terms, and that God must submit to our program of how to get it done. Now, this was Job. He wanted to get rid of evil in his life, but on his own terms. But who do we think we are? Because there are dark forces in this world that we cannot defeat, neither on our own, nor on our own terms. Instead, we always try to look for worldly solutions to spiritual problems. And they always fail. They always fail. Because these dark forces are too great. And this is where the Lord would take Job next. The Lord introduces two beasts or monsters of his own creation that have a lore or a story in ancient Near Eastern mythology. And as it is common in ancient mythology, uh, the Lord introduces these beasts as opponents to Job. So he introduces these beasts to ask Job, can you defeat these beasts? First, he introduces behemoth. And just like every mythical creature, there is some truth about uh, the creature's existence, but it is wrapped in mystery, fantasy, and symbolism To communicate some supernatural truth. This is what the Lord does here. In ancient mythology, it is believed that behemoth is a creature that resembles a hippopotamus or a crocodile. So notice first that this behemoth is a creation of God, just like Job. So he existed in some form. 
He made him like he made Job. He eats grass like an ox, which is a way of saying that he is constantly eating and consuming. He is never satisfied. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking something or someone to devour. He speaks of his strength. He is strong in all of his body parts, from his loins to his belly, from his tail to his thighs. His tail and thighs is believed to be euphemism for his private parts, as behemoth is often a symbol of sexual immorality. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. Again, he uses figurative and exaggerated language to communicate this beast's strength. Also, this beast is unique and preeminent. He is the first of the works of God. Uh, This may be alluding to the fact that he existed outside of the six days of creation with supernatural origins, yet short of being divine. He is greatest of all creatures. And he is so strong that no human is a match for him. Only God can defeat him. It says, let him who made him bring near his sword. If Job thinks he is as strong as God and wants to play God, let him bring his sword. But it's no use for Job. But the Lord is able to conquer him with his sword, which comes out of his mouth, as we read in Revelation 19.15. This behemoth uses this world as his playground, and he is constantly feasting. He is in the mountains, in the high places where the beasts play, where food is endlessly provided for him as tribute for defeating his enemies. In other words, he is worshipped as a false idol, a false god. He has places to hide himself when he rests. He has no fear of large bodies of water like the River Jordan. Uh, Sounds like a crocodile laying by a river at home with the demons. Uh, See, the sea is symbolic of chaos, evil, and destruction, and it is the home of demons. Throughout the scriptures, the Lord defeats evil, and he is symbolically conquering evil by subduing the seas. He parts the Red Sea. He parts the Jordan River. Jesus calms the sea. Jesus walks on water. And then Jesus goes into the Jordan River to be baptized. His baptism was symbolic of conquering evil. So he asks Job, who can tame him, Job? Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? No human can do this, but only God can do this. See, this entire text is about the distinction between the creator and the creature. Even the fiercest and darkest of creatures. Who can defeat them if not man? Who is made in the image of God. Who else? Secondly, he introduces Leviathan. Leviathan has been mentioned by Job as a beast that brings chaos and death in chapter 3 verse 8. And he is described as a fleeing serpent both in Job and in the book of Isaiah. uh, Chapter 27 verse 1. In ancient mythology, he is depicted in many ways. He is depicted as a sea monster, like the Loch Ness Monster, or even a whale. 
In ancient Egypt, much like Behemoth, Leviathan is also depicted as a crocodile. So there are many reasons to believe that Behemoth and Leviathan are one in the same creature. Because they're both here described as unique and stronger than all other living creatures on earth. If you want to do your own study, compare chapter 40 verse 19 with chapter 41 verses 33 through 34. And what the Lord is doing here is building on his description of a creature that exists, who is also symbolic of chaos, evil, destruction, and death, much like the serpent in Genesis. And God is asking, we know man, especially Job, is no match for them, but do you think they can defeat me? Listen to what he asks Job. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? You think you could go fishing for him? Do you think you could just hook his jaw, pull him in, and rope him up? That's man for you. A little too overconfident. But you can't bind him. He is too large. He is saying to Job, you can't tame a wild ox. Do you think you can tame Leviathan? This great monster, will he make many pleas to you? Will he come to your throne and submit to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? No, of course not. Here the Lord is revealing that this Leviathan is his servant. An unwilling servant, but his servant nonetheless, much like You know who. Leviathan serves the Lord's purposes, not Job's. He asks him, will Leviathan become his pet to play with like you would play with a pet bird? Will you put him on a leash like a dog for your kids? Or are you going to try to catch him, kill him, and sell him in the fish market? You would be underestimating Leviathan's strength. He is too dangerous and he is too strong for any human being. You can't pierce his skin nor his head with harpoons or fishing spears. And when you try to fight him, you will regret it. Job's confidence would be all based on the false hopes of man. But he would be a fool because at the sight of this beast, everyone hides themselves. And who would dare wake him up when he is sleeping? Now, from verses 12 through 34, he describes his strength in many ways and how he is unbeatable. He speaks of the frame of his body and his limbs. Uh, Again, it sounds like a large crocodile. Who can come near him with a bridle to close his mouth? Uh, Just open his mouth and you'll see his rows of teeth that should strike terror in the hearts of every man. His back is made of impenetrable shields side by side one another. There is no crack between them where you can stick a spear to kill him. Then he is described more mythically in that he is like a fire-breathing dragon. In many cultures, there is a belief that dragons existed at some point in time. And I kind of agree. His neck, his muscles and skin are firm and immovable. His heart is as a stone, rock solid and evil. When he raises up, the mighty are afraid. When he crashes down on the people and towns, they are beside themselves. And it is no use 
to use swords, spears, darts, clubs, javelins, arrows, bullets. You can even drop an atom bomb on him and it won't phase him. Sounds kind of like Godzilla, doesn't it? Even his underparts, his belly is sharp and hard. He lays at the bottom of a swamp. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Again, notice he mentions the deep often associated with Sheol, the place of the dead, and the sea. Again, often associated with demon activity. All this to say, you can't mess with this monster, this fire-breathing dragon, because this monster symbolizes destruction, chaos, and death. Things we all face in this fallen world. He is the embodiment of evil. And like Behemoth, he is unique. On earth there is none like him, a creature without fear. He is the proudest and strongest of all the creatures. In ancient Egypt, Leviathan, the crocodile, was a symbol of chaos. Similar to the dragon that we find in Revelation. And the dragon that lies in the midst of his streams or rivers in Ezekiel 29 verse 3. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. The sons of rebellion or better how Paul describes them. The sons of disobedience. And who made him? Listen to Psalm 104, verse 26, when Asaph describes Israel's exodus out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. He says to the Lord, there go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in the seas. We get a better picture of who Behemoth and Leviathan is meant to represent here. So if you can't mess with this monster Leviathan, he asks back in verses 10 and 11, who can stand before God? Who can stand before the one who created Leviathan? He is saying, Job, I know you're going through a lot. Uh, Our suffering does come with fear, and that fear oftentimes comes from dark forces that are unseen. Uh, Martin Luther was an example of going through this His entire life, even up until his death, he didn't have that storybook Christian life and ending. But the Lord is saying to Job, Job, you said that Leviathan would be roused up to bring hell on earth, so to speak, back in chapter 3. But Leviathan is not the one you should fear. He doesn't have control over the situations in your life. Whatever this beast can do to you, He cannot kill your soul, and he cannot give life to your soul. But I can. In Revelation, we must ask, who unleashes wrath on the world? Is it the beasts? Do they have say when wrath is to be unleashed? Or are they just instruments? Revelation 6 says that the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, opens the seven seals which unleashes the seven plagues on the earth. And so who can understand the strength, power, and ways of God? 
Now the Apostle Paul pretty much quotes this text word for word in Romans 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Who do I owe anything to? Who has given me anything? No one. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, including the darkest and fiercest of beasts. Even Satan and the fallen angels were created by God. They belong to him. They are his creatures. The Lord has them all on a leash like dogs. Uh, They didn't create themselves and they are not on the same level with God. When we think of the battle between God and Satan, I think many of us think that since it's a battle, this must mean that Satan has a chance, right? God is saying here, "I, I think not. He is my creature and he'll do my bidding until I destroy him. But also he is saying to Job and to all of us, these beasts, they symbolize chaos and destruction. So whatever darkness you're going through in your life, the Lord sees it. He is sovereign over all of it. Remember, Job is a victim of persecution at the hands of Satan. God sees it and there will be a day of reckoning. So in sum, we ought to ask ourselves, who are these beasts? And what is the point? What is the purpose of the Lord introducing them to Job and to us? First, who do these beasts represent? As mentioned before, I believe they are both referencing the same creature with the same source of evil and power. Both beasts serve the same purpose of chaos, destruction, and death. They are at home on land and sea, much like the beasts described in Revelation 13. We have established that in other places, Leviathan is described as a serpent. He has great strength that no human can match. He is unique, and he is described as king over all the sons of pride, the sons of rebellion and disobedience. Who does this sound like? It sounds like the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, Beelzebub, the prince of demons, the beast, the great red dragon of Revelation, the ancient serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. This answers the question, what happened to Satan in this story? He was mentioned back in chapter 1 and 2, and then he disappeared. But all along, he was in the background, speaking through Job's friends as the accuser. Then God introduces him here to say to Job, you can't defeat him on your own and on your own terms. Trust in me. Because Job fell for the old lie of the serpent that God is unjust, and so he relied on his own understanding, and at times, don't we all? Don't we all? So secondly, by introducing these beasts, God is asking Job and he is asking all of us, do you think that Satan is outside of my control? Am I not sovereign over him? Am I not his creator? And so is your dark situation too much for me to handle? All the evil that the beast has brought into your life, am I not able to overcome them? 
Am I not still your Savior as well as your Creator? Also, is God unjust for giving him permission to run amok in this world? He serves a purpose. And guess what? No one can defeat him. But there is one man who has defeated him and will defeat him. In Colossians 2.15 it says that at the cross God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. In Revelation 20 verse 2 it says that right now Satan is bound, not inactive, but bound up so that the church would be able to spread the gospel to the nations. And one day, he will ultimately and permanently defeat him, as recorded in Revelation 19 and 20. One day, we will see everything and everyone subjected to Jesus Christ, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the angels, the living, and the dead. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he has conquered evil, death, and the great dragon, our enemy Satan. And as Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is the promise. And so what does this mean for us? Well, first... We're called to step off our own thrones built by arrogance and pride and stop trying to sit on God's throne. We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and rely upon His strength and His promises because we cannot defeat this enemy on our own. Secondly, we are called to fear God. If these beasts sound scary, how much more are we to fear God, the one who created them? Because he is the only one who can defeat these beasts. And this is not a slavish fear or or just a fear of punishment, but it is a reverent fear as a child to his or her father. So thirdly, we are called to know and trust That he is sovereign over these dark beasts, over the evil in our lives, and who has already and will ultimately defeat the beast and the dragon. Notice that God uses evil, darkness, and death to conquer evil, darkness, and death. He used Satan to whisper into the ears of Judas to betray Jesus. He used the evil act of crucifixion by the hands of evil men who nailed Jesus, God's beloved son, to the cross in order to defeat Satan, evil, death, and eternal destruction. And three days later, it was confirmed. He uses Satan's plans against him. So he'll use the darkness in your life for his plans and purposes for you, which are to make you whole in Christ. I'll leave you with what the author of Hebrews says of Christ, who partook of our flesh, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. Amen.